go ahead and be seated tonight. Uh, we've been uh, looking the last few weeks at the topic of ordinary revival. Again, not that revival in itself is ordinary, but in the fact of people and, and, and uh, how revival spread, not just through the names that we read of in Scripture, but how it spread uh, throughout the church, of which we know very few of their names. Uh, how that revival became a part of everyday life, not just something that was the church's responsibility or certain people's responsibility. And so we, we, we've looked at some people who are revivalists, and last week uh, we looked at, started looking at this concept of in but not of, in but not of, and how that this was a part of the early church, a part of their theology, some words that Jesus had given them to them in John, which we'll read in just a minute, John chapter 17. <laughs> but he had given them this idea, this concept that they were supposed to be in the world, but not of it. And, and we're going to read that passage from John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Uh, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world." And we looked at this last week, and we looked at how, uh, first off, that, that God, he's, Jesus is saying, you know what, I could have prayed they would have been taken out of the world. And there's been moments when we've all probably thought that, Lord, just take me out of this world. <laughs> Maybe you thought it, to, no, hopefully you didn't think it today. But Lord, take me out of this world. But he said, you know what, I could have done that, but I didn't pray that they would be taken out of the world. But I prayed that they would be sent into the world and be kept from evil. So we need to understand that fact, and we looked at it, that we are in the, and this is where we get the, the more modern phrase, if you would, in the world, but not of the world. Well, we, we understand and know that we are in this world. We understand that our concepts, our ideologies do not come from this world. In fact, there's a picture of a scuba diver, if you want to put that up. I didn't give her any notes tonight, so she's just winging it tonight. This is a good idea of, and he's waving at you, so you can wave back at him, uh, of in the world, but not of the world. If you, if you go scuba diving, which I've never been scuba diving, but you take your apparatus with you, you don't just go swim with the fishes, that's not a good thing to happen, uh, but you, you put on the, the right equipment, you put on the breathing suit, and you enter a, a, an ecosystem, an environment that is unnatural to you. You cannot breathe underwater, but you take the things with you so that you can be underwater. In the same way, we cannot enter this world unprepared. We are not of this world. We have to enter the world a different way. We, and Scripture tells us, put on the full armor of God. There's things that Scripture tells us to do that we understand that we cannot just uh, wake up and, and, and go into the world and just feel and do and experience all that and it not affect us just as someone just jumps in the water and says, I'm going to be underwater for the next 10 minutes. No, you're going to end up in a bad way. And so Scripture tells us what we can do to be in the world but not of the world. And we find the early church, this was part of it. They were not taken out of the world by any means, but they were fully engaged in their world. And they were so engaged in their world that they ended up turning their world upside down. Amen. And this was words that were not spoken by the church itself, but by those that came they, 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 in the city when they came in. They said, these are they which have turned the world upside down. It was a recognized fact. <laughs> 
I, sometimes I feel like we, we, well, we don't need to self-promote saying that we're the ones turning the world upside down, but I would like for this community to say that. I would like to, for this community to say, that's the church that prayed and my situation changed. That's the church I went to and experienced the presence of God and something happened in my life. In the world, but not of the world. We understand that as followers of Christ, that we cannot act the way that we did before. As people having experienced a new birth, we understand that there is more to it than just a singular or one-time salvation experience. But I am now called to be different. I am called to live different. It's not just about coming to the altar and receiving the Holy Ghost and going back to the way you were. No, I must, there, there, there must be a change in my life. And we've been looking at this passage in John and how it related to the early church. And so we've talked about how it wasn't just the big names, but there was the untold thousands of people that had also sold out and committed their life to this Christian message, the gospel. What was it, as we look at these people, what was it that allowed these people to live in relative obscurity, but somehow compelled these people who were facing all the persecution and exile and even death, what was it that compelled them to take this gospel message with them and continue to spread it wherever they ended up? What was it that drove them? We find this concept of Jesus being in the world but not of it is a prevalent thought throughout the early church, although not expressly stated. And again, we mentioned this last week, we understand that there are many different ways that we are to be in the world but not of the world. We mentioned these last week, we're not supposed to be like the world in our perspective. We understand that there is something greater than the temporal in our lives. We understand that we're not supposed to be like the world in our treasures, that there are there's, uh, treasures that we are storing up for ourselves that are not of this world. They are heavenly. We understand, and this becomes very difficult to understand sometimes, that our weaponry is different, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that we do not fight against flesh and blood, neither do we fight with flesh and blood. And this may come into a little bit of play as we move on here because sometimes uh, you just need a well, anyway. We're not the same way in our power. Scripture tells us that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. We understand that it's not just about things and this will solve it all and this will fix it all. No, I trust in the name of the Lord in my life. I understand that my peace is different. Scripture tells us, Jesus says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. I understand that I can't get satisfaction and contentment and peace from anything in this world. It can only come from Jesus Christ. And lastly, we understand that our citizenship is different. We are not citizens of this world. We understand that we are strangers and pilgrims here. Hebrews says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Those things affect how I wake up in the morning. Those things affect how I make decisions in my life. That I don't make decisions the same way. I don't respond the same way. I don't act the same way. Because of those things, I'm in the world, but not of the world. And there was two specific things that, that we were going to address. We looked at the first one last week. Last week, we discussed fear. They, they understood the early church that they were not like the world in their fears. And we talked about how the world deals and trades in fear. And, and I, I, I may reference it again, but... Uh, and, and not particularly to politics, but this last uh, election cycle that we had, I think it revealed uh, not even so much about the politicians themselves, but I think it revealed more about who we are as a people and nation. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's crazy that we had two people running for office that were both under federal investigation. Whichever one you want. <laughs> they were both under federal investigation. That's where we are as a nation. I think it says a lot about where we have ended up. And we talked about how it was an election of fear. How they, it, was, it was not an election of, of, of pro things. It was, it was totally against one person or another. And people voted out of genuine fear of what would happen if the other person got in power. And we talked about how the enemy's one of its greatest weapons is fear. And the enemy would like nothing more than to paralyze you with fear in your life. And we talked about all the fears that assail us, and some of them are genuine. We talked about how you don't let your kids just run around all day because there's fear of what may happen to them. There's, there's things that are valid fears, but we allow fears to begin to control us. And it, fear is a controlling agent. And we talked about how it's not satisfied until it controls every part of you. You can't just have fear in one small part of your life. No, before long it will be controlling your life, controlling your actions, and ultimately who you are as a person. We read 1 John chapter 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Fear has an end goal, a place that it's heading in your life. You see, you need to understand this about the enemy, that it's not random. While we don't like to give credence to the enemy, it's not random. It has a goal. It has a purpose. It has a place that it's heading. And we know that the ultimate goal that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And fear has no less than these goals at its very root. That fear has come to steal from you, kill you, and destroy your life. And fear could have destroyed the first revival. But these disciples, the, the, the early church, they knew that fear was not of God. And had no place to dwell in their lives. And so when they left the Sanhedrin having been beaten and forbidden to preach the gospel. They did not go cower somewhere, yet they prayed for boldness in a prayer meeting. We understand that there was uh, severe things that could have happened to them, and yet they continued to preach the gospel in the face of persecution and everything happening in their lives. Fear had no place. In 1 John, so that's, that's fear, but this verse in 1 John takes us to the second aspect of what I want to look at, of in but not of, uh, that I would like to approach. While there are a host of ways, and we've mentioned some, that we are to be different, there are two that I feel that we need to look at based on our society and culture and where it is right now. And also looking at them in the context of revival. Fear hindering revival in this next subject as well. John tells us in this verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that there is an antidote to fear, and it is perfect love. And this is the other aspect of in but not of that I would like us to look at, is our love. We live in a world in which love has become completely convoluted and distorted. It's touted as a virtue, yet never has it been so misinterpreted in our society. We are bombarded with words that are linked to love or how their definition has been changed to be linked with love, such as tolerance, acceptance, affirmation, open-mindedness, respect. And yet we live in a world while love has never been so talked about in which there seems so little love at all. In fact, it seems like we're living in a world, and this is where I'd like to go, is really a divided love. Because, see, we've, we've taken these, not we, but society has taken these words, they've transformed them, they've changed them to give them their own meaning, 
And now all of a sudden, love itself has almost taken on a new meaning. And, and the danger becomes, as we are in the world but not of it, that somehow some of the thinking, some of the mentality of the world begins to rub off on us if we're not careful. Now when Jesus came to this earth, we know that he came to seek and to save the lost. And the lost covered a whole swath of people. It covered all of humanity. It covered every race, every creed, every nationality. It covered everything. Jesus came to save any single person that was lost. It didn't matter if they were rich, if they were poor, if they were young, if they were old, if they were Jewish, Greek. It did not matter what. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We find from the way that Jesus operated that he believed that way. We find him sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. This was not something that was widely accepted at that time. And it wasn't just any Samaritan woman, but it was a woman of ill repute that had been married uh, numerous times. And the person that she was living with wasn't her husband. So there was a variety of reasons that Jesus, a person who was classified as a rabbi by some people, should not be associated with this woman. We find Jesus associating himself with the down and out. We find the woman cast at adultery at his feet, and yet he shows compassion. We find him casting spirits out of Mary Magdalene, a woman of ill repute and possessed as well. We find him sitting with sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth in those days. In fact, he calls one of them to be his disciples. We find him associating with a variety of people. We find him uh, receiving a, a, a Roman centurion to him that wants his daughter healed. And, and, and the centurion says, you don't even have to come. Just say the word and she will be healed. And he says, never have I found such great faith. And I don't think we comprehend the slap in the face that those words were. Because this was a Roman centurion. This was a person who had invaded the land of Israel. This was a person who had put others in slavery. This is a person who had beaten or been a part of beating of Israelites and casting them in prison. And he says, this person right here, the person that is probably the most reviled in this crowd, has greater faith than everyone else. Now put yourself in that crowd. (laughs) It's no wonder they wanted to stone him at times. You see, Jesus was this person that came preaching, love your enemies. You've heard it said this, but I say this. And those I say this, man, those were tough sometimes. You know, I wonder what, how Jesus would be accepted today. I really do. You know, as I was thinking about this, you know, a lot of times we, we, uh, we just put this, uh, maybe you don't, I do. I just put my own thoughts on what people in Scripture should have been and how they were. Because my way is the right way and how I think how everyone thought. And that's why the world's where it is today. But when I think of the triumphal entry, when I think of, of this, this portion, they're all, Jesus comes in on the donkey and they're all worshiping and praising him. And then a few days later, those same people are yelling, crucify him. Now, as I see it in my mind, for that to happen, those people are just a bunch of dumb, ignorant sheep just following the crowd. I mean, I don't know if that's how you view him. To go from calling someone the Messiah to crucify him seems to me quite a stretch when I think about it. They were just... But I want you to think, there was people gathered from... Jews gathered from around the world there. Around the Jewish world. So there was not just a bunch of ignorant people there. 
there was probably, well, we know Luke was a doctor. There was doctors during that day. There was probably influential people there. There was people of every social stratus that were there. These were not a bunch of mindless dummies, and yet somehow they, they crucified Jesus, even though they were worshiping just a few days before. How is that even possible? Well, <laughs> I don't know that we would do any different today, honestly. Because, see, the tradition was is they would bring, uh, they would bring uh, a pr- prisoners forward and they would say, which one would be set free? And the crowd would choose. And on that particular occasion, it was Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus had come and was a huge disappointment to a lot of people. Jesus came and the crowds followed him. Why did they follow him? Because they thought he was going to defeat the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. They thought he was going to save them. They thought he was going to fix the system. This is the Savior, but in the different sense of the, of the word. He's going he's to drive the Romans out. He's going to lead an army. He's going to defeat them all. He's going to do all this. And then we find him telling a Roman centurion, the very person that he's supposed to defeat and cast out, you, you've got greater faith than any I've seen here. This is the guy that said to love your enemies. This is the guy that said when someone does wrong to you, turn the other cheek. This is the guy that said when someone does you wrong, I, I don't want you just to forgive them, but I want you to forgive them that time and then the next 469 times they do the same thing to you. We call that dumb. <laughs> fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, or shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me 470 times yeah so this is this is the guy that's put before them I don't know which one was the mob mentality when they worshiped him or when they said crucify him because on the other side is Barabbas now take away the fact that he's he's against Jesus we might actually like him You know why? He's a guy that gets things done. He does. He's a guy that sees something going going on. He sees this is an injustice that we're under this. We need to get out from this. We need to do this. And and he killed a Roman soldier over it. He was was in, in, in the rebellion. He was a zealot. He was someone who was doing something about this Roman problem. We need to do something about this. You know what? Just sitting around doing anything. We're just letting the Romans overtake us. We're paying taxes and the tax collectors are taking more money. And they're doing this and they're doing that and doing this and doing that. I'm doing something about it. Because we do like action, right? We do. I'm not saying we would choose. But it's interesting to look at. Because I'm not sure that we would react much. It didn't take a whole lot of convincing by the Pharisees to turn them against Jesus. And they chose the guy who was doing something. They chose the guy. They divided the love. And see, I think that's where we're at in society today. Is, is that love has never been so touted. It's never been so, you know, you've got to love, you've got to accept, you've got to do this. But have we, and I know we have, but in recent times, has it ever seemed like our country is more divided than ever than right now? In the age of acceptance and love. I mean, it seems like there's just this upswell of racism, of prejudice, of left and right, of everything. There's, it's, you know, we talk about blurred lines a lot. There's a lot of very highly defined lines right now of you're right, you're wrong, this is it, this is... I mean, even our media is split. 
You don't even have impartial media. You've got left media and right media, and you've got everything is divided. And yet this is when we're all supposed to be loving and accepting and tolerant. Seems a little confusing to me. There's a verse that we find in Matthew. I think this is why it's very important. This is Jesus speaking. Oh, sorry, not Matthew, Mark. I apologize. Mark chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. I want to read Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 27 as well. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. We find here the two most important laws. We find them put together here seemingly almost as one single law, almost. And it has to do with loving the Lord and loving thy neighbor. It seems to me like those two loves are really indivisible. We read throughout Scripture, and we know we've, we've looked at First John and various things different times, and we've talked about love early this year. But it seems to me like loving the Lord thy God and loving thy neighbor as thyself are really indivisible, in that you can't love God and not love your neighbor. You can't really love your neighbor unless you love God. And see, our world, it, 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 the enemy knows that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And it seems to me like in this day and age, it seems like the enemy is trying to divide our love. And this goes back to early church, and I want to remind you, this is not just talking about love, this is talking about revival. Revival. Because I want to see revival happening. I want to see revival continuing. And the enemy doesn't, just in case you didn't want to know that. And the enemy will try and do anything he can to defeat us. He'll, he'll put fear in there. He'll do anything. And in fact, it's those fears that begin to play upon our love. Because the world deals in fear. And as I begin to fear more, as I begin to fear groups of people more, as I begin to fear ideologies more, you know what I have less of? Love. And you know what happens when I, Jesus looked out onto the fields and saw them white ready to be harvested? You know what a lack of love does? It makes me selective in what I see in the harvest. Jesus came to seek and to save everyone. You know why the early church was so powerful? <clears throat> is that they lived in a society that was as tolerant as ours is. You see, that was one of the strengths of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, and in fact, historians say it's one of the greatest things they did. Usually when a nation came in and they conquered, they took away everything. They said, here's our culture, here's our society, here's our religion. You do everything that we do. But the Romans understood that that created, uh, it created resentment. And so they would come in and say, you worshipped uh, tortilla chips and uh, refried beans. They would come in and say, you know what, we're, here's what we're going to do. We, we believe in Mars and we believe in all these and we're adding tortilla chips and refried beans to the pantheon of gods. We're just going to take your gods and make them ours. And if you're going to have gods, you might as well be tortilla chips and refried beans. <clears throat> so they would add it. They wouldn't subtract anything away. They were tolerant about what was happening. They would say, we accept this in. 
And so as nations would be conquered, they didn't lose their gods. They just gained a bunch more gods. And you could worship whoever you wanted. That's why we see that, that Judaism was still going because Judaism was not squashed. It was just added to, and that was just one of the other gods in the Roman belief system. So it was a system of tolerance. And here comes Jesus saying, you know what? There's some intolerance in my message and that you have to come out from among them and be separate. And so his message came against culture at that moment. It came against what was happening. And yet we know that in those times, although there was tolerance for religion and all these things, there was much intolerance in the world as well. There was a lack of love. There was a lack of everything taking place. And what the early church did is they said, here's the way that is right. Here's the way that is true. And yet they did not allow their love to become divided. They knew who God was. They worshipped him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet they still managed to love their neighbor as themselves. You see, the crazy thing about the early church is that Christianity crossed every culture. Christianity crossed every socio-political and economic stratus there was. There was rich in the church. There was poor in the church. There were slaves in the church. There was masters in the church. There was every ethnicity in the church. And really, in the face of society saying, you are the most intolerant thing there is, they encompassed more tolerance than anyone else. The very fact that they encompassed all these things demonstrated the love of Jesus Christ. You see, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus, I know I've said it, Jesus came to seek and to save everyone, and the gospel works for everybody. It works for every nationality. It works for every uh, political group. It works for every economic group. It works for everybody. And Scripture commands me to go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That means people that think like me, that act like me, that respond like me, and it means people that don't look like me, that don't act like me, that don't respond like me. We find a very clear distinction and separation of Scripture, and that is of sin and the church, of the world and the church, of light and darkness, but that is the only separation there is. And my fear is, is that while the world is preaching tolerance, it's pulling up dividers and walls between people. We've had demonstrations, and this, this is how the world operates and how it thinks that it can rationalize this. That it can have marches about tolerance that turn violent. We want peace, and we want, we want equality, we want all this, and so I'm going to flip the car over and set it on fire. And yet that's deemed acceptable. And here's the deal. So while they're doing that, while, they're, while they are creating the same tolerance, they're actually building divisions. And here's the reason that divisions are being built. Because the enemy knows the way to destroy something is to divide it. And let me just say this. I, I'm not saying in this church. I'm just saying what is happening in the world doesn't need to influence the church. It's concerning that that's what's happening in the world because very often society begins to have an effect on the church. And the last thing the church needs is for walls to be built inside of it. I have notes all over the place. There's a verse from James that I want to read. A few verses. James chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Another version says, with partiality. That word simply translates as prejudice. Which simply, in, in its basic form, is prejudging. 
So this is not necessarily speaking of any particular race or nationality, but it's speaking of prejudging. When I prejudge somebody, he's saying that is, the, the way it's worded there is a little awkward, but he's saying that is not the faith of the Lord Jesus to prejudge somebody, to put up a wall before anything has happened. And he's saying this, and he's writing this to the church, because even in this day, it's happening in the church. Moving on down that chapter in verse 8, it says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. That's the royal law. That's what the king has set in place. But if you have respect to persons, or if you prejudge people, you commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And he's not speaking of the royal law. He's speaking of the law that you and I deserve to be judged by. The law of justice, not the law of mercy. He mentions the royal law and says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. But if you show partiality, if you show prejudgment of people, you are committing sin and, and, and you are judged under a different law. And under that law, if you break one part of it, you've broken the whole thing. Just like if you rip a shirt, he mentioned somewhere else when you rend a garment. If I rip my shirt right here, I don't say, oh, the top left part of my shirt is ripped. I say my shirt is ripped. In the same way, when I offend in one part of the law, when I show prejudgment of people, it means that I have ripped the entire law. That means contained in that law is adultery, is murder, is jealousy, is wrath, is envy. I have ripped it all. If I want to be judged under the law of liberty, he he later says, that is where mercy is invoked on my part. I better make sure that I'm following the royal law of Scripture. I better make sure that the walls that society is trying to build, trying to divide in our culture, does not infiltrate the church. The church needs to be a place that reflects the love of Jesus Christ, that reflects whosoever will let him come. And there should be every nationality, every creed, every persuasion that walks through the doors. Because let me tell you, we are not convincing people from one side to another. No, it's not that I'm this or that. No, we are all coming together and being made fellow citizens of a new heavenly country. And so it does not matter how somebody comes into this place. It doesn't matter their sexual orientation. It doesn't matter their nationality. It doesn't matter their race. Because you know what? There's a heavenly citizenship that we are all trying to attain. And society would have us, despite what they are telling us, they would have us build these walls amongst ourselves. And the reason why is because the enemy knows that a house divided will fall. When I begin to think that I can love God and not love my neighbor, when I begin to think I can love God and show partiality and prejudgment of people, something will happen. Something will turn off in my own life. And James tells us what turns off. Mercy turns off in our own life. And let me tell you, I don't know about you, but I need His mercy every single day. There's things I do that I deserve, His wrath, His judgment. But His mercy keeps it from me. In Luke chapter 10, we read those verses where a lawyer stands up and says, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 29, the guy gets back up, 
because he's answered his own question. Jesus never answered. He just responded with a question. It says, but he, that is the lawyer, willing to justify himself. There's a good series right there. The only reason he stood up was because he's trying to justify himself. Let me tell you what, I'm not trying to justify anything in myself. I need to be justifying the word of God and what he said. And if there's any other motivation, I need to be worried. But he tried to justify himself and said, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Then we have the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read the whole parable to you. Man's beaten by robbers, laying there. A Levite walks by, he's beaten half dead, walks by on the other side. The priest comes, walks by on the other side. Then a Samaritan comes, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. You know what? Here's the deal. In my humanity, because we can all be judgmental. Don't judge me for that. Despite the fact that the only verse people know throughout all of the world from the Bible is judge not, unless you be judged. We all have prejudgments in our life. Human nature within the first few seconds forms an opinion of somebody the first time you meet them. That's just how we're wired. And here's the deal. Let's just take the man on the road to Jericho. Let's take him out of the road to Jericho and just say we come across a person in a circumstance. I immediately begin to make judgments about that person and their circumstance. Why was that guy traveling by himself? What an idiot. Everyone knows there's bandits on this road. Why in the world would you travel this road by yourself? He's half dead. Well, that means he's half alive. Couldn't you have crawled somewhere? You're half alive. Begin to look at the person, look at the situation, and come up with all the reasons about why they should not be in that position. That's what I do. Because that's my human nature. And you know what? Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's true. And so we feel justified in ourselves because it's true. If that person would just get a job... That person would just do this. They would just do that. And you know what my judgments do before long? They start dividing my love. Because what is it that I need in my life more than anything? Is His mercy. The story tells us he found, the Samaritan found the man in his circumstance. And before he put up any walls, made any decisions, figured out how he was there, whether it was a, a social issue that put him there, whether he was some wacko that thought some all kinds of crazy stuff, whether he was, in uh, uh, this story specifically says, and it still applies today, of another nationality or, or someone who was hated, a, a separate race. Before he made any of those judgments, we read that he was first of all moved with compassion for him. I can't reach the world that God has called me to without having compassion first. And see, I'm worried the world has made me bring judgment first. Because you know what? I see people, I, I just, 
I watched an interview right before I came, well, not right before, but pretty close before I came to church. Should not have done that. Got me all worked up. <laughs> and you think some people just, they just need, just need a good old slap across the face and that would do them more good than anything else. And you know what? Some people may. You may think I do. But you know what? We begin, it, it, that just sounds something goofy and innocent, but before long, we start to put up things in our life. It begins to creep in in small ways. Before long, we're passing on the other side of the road. Because that person's different. The person's not like me. I might get involved with that person. And before long, we've created walls in our life. We've divided our love. Because you know what the priest did that day? You know what he did after he passed that guy? I'll tell you what he did. He went to church. He lifted his hands. He worshiped God. You know what the Levite did? They were musicians and singers. You know what he did? He, he, he got up there, did whatever his job was. Maybe he was praise singing that day. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to act like it. Took the microphone. They all looked at him because they're like, man, this is, this, is, uh, this is 13 AD. What's a microphone? And, and he sang. But here's the deal. That day that he sang, that day whatever happened in church, his love was divided that day. Suddenly a wall had been built. He'd passed by someone who, who may have deserved exactly where they were. And yet there was some guy that just walked back past and felt compassion for him. You see, the early church, they had every opportunity, and I'm finishing up, I realize the time. The early church had every opportunity to have divided love. As people were coming into their homes, ripping their families apart, killing them, destroying them, imprisoning them. They had every opportunity to say, you know what, that person does not deserve. We find, this, we find the story of Peter and the centurion. We're not even going to go into all that because I want you to understand too that the early church struggled with this. They struggled with it. Peter had a vision from God and God spoke to him three times. He told God no Three times. He said, I'm not going to touch that's what, that, that's unclean because I've been raised this way. This is how I've been trained to think. Though I'm not going to touch whatever it is you're lowering down to me. I am not touching that. And he did it based on religious reasons. Can't get more spiritual than that. And then there's a knock on the door. There's a knock on the door. And let me remind you, he went to Cornelius that was of the Italian band. And there's a reason Italian band was mentioned. is because these were not soldiers that had just been taken from the surrounding areas. They were from Rome. They were as Roman as could be. They were more like bodyguards to protect. So there'd probably been some, they were some rough guys. They were bodyguards. You didn't mess with these guys. They were protecting what the Jews hated. And he's called to his house. They had to struggle with it. They had an issue with it. And yet God filled them with the Holy Ghost. Amen. We find Paul, who's put in prison, the end of his life. He should have hated those men guarding him. He had every reason to hate. Let me just put it to you this way. Because hate's a pretty strong word. 
And I would say most of us in here really, I would hope, don't struggle with hate. He could have just not cared. He could have just not cared. They're my jailers. I don't care. And yet we know historically that they had to change his guards every two hours because he was converting them. The people imprisoning him. Scripture tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. It says there's no difference between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the challenge to me is because here I am, a church without walls. Here I am saying the gospel can do anything in anybody's life and change anybody's life. Here I am saying the church is willing to accept anyone who walks through the doors. And yet it still remains nameless and faceless in my own life. Because it's the church. But who's welcome in my life? Since I'm the church. You see, society would like to create the wall of them and us. And here's just a real quick judge. It likes to create them and us. Scripture says all have sinned. We're all sinners saved by grace. But society says them and us. Whatever it is. So let me ask you this question as we close. Who's the them in your life? Who's the them? Who's those? Those people in your life? See, because if the early church would have ever said those people, revival wouldn't have happened the way it did. It would have stopped right there. Peter never had to answer that door. He could have said, no, Lord. The challenge is, is not to have divided love. Perfect love casts out all fear. There is one perfect love that I can find, and it's at the cross. For my love to be restored... For me to experience what perfect love looks like, feels like, and acts like, there's only one thing that I can do. I have to find myself at the foot of the cross again. It's where I find perfect love. If I feel like I've got prejudgment, and and I'm going to say this, I'm not going to go into detail, but I'm talking from experience in my own life. I had prejudice in my life. And you know what it took? It took the Lord. It took the Lord. And it took me going back to the foot of the cross and realizing how much love I needed. How much mercy I needed. And that I can't love God without loving my neighbor. Last, last thing, it's a quote. How many ever heard of the cross and the switchblade? Come on now. Growing up, there was no television, but we had this fine collection of Christian videos. Of which the 70's version of the cross and the switchblade was on there. I was raised on the cross and the switchblade. Great movie. In that, it's the story of David Wilkerson, a preacher who went to the inner cities of New York and witnessed to the gangs, people that were unlovable, unreachable. And the leader of the one gang was Nicky Cruz. Nicky Cruz hated David Wilkerson and his message. Hated it. And the one time he pulls out the switchblade, hence the name cross and the switchblade. He pulls out his switchblade... And he says to David Wilkerson, you come near me and I'll kill you. Good enough for me. The Lord can reach him some other way. 
David Wilkerson said, yeah, you could do that. You could cut me into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street. And every piece will still love you. Every piece will still love you. I wonder those that are unreachable, those that are them and those in our life. I wonder how much love would scream from us if we were unjustly treated by people we already have an issue with already. You see, if I want to have revival continue, I've got to be willing to let the Lord send me into every field. There can be no field off limit. If this is a church without walls, it needs to truly be that. I really debated about whether to stick my toe in or dive in tonight. When I think of a sanctuary that's built, I think of the Lord blessing. I think of 600 people sitting in an auditorium. What does that look like? Does it look like a bunch of people like me? I know it shouldn't, but in my mind does it. I want to challenge you tonight. If I want to see revival happen, it's got to be more than just me. It's got to be more than just my kind. I've got to begin to look and reach because the Lord has sent me into all the world, no matter where it is, no matter what it looks like, and I need to rid myself of certain feelings. I need to rid myself of certain feelings because if I don't, I'm going to be judged by the whole law. I want us to stand this evening. My prejudgments of others. My prejudgments of others. When I can take an entire swath of society and say, they're all like this. They're all this way. I've got a prejudgment somewhere. When I take stereotypes and place it on others and just go with it as truth, I've got prejudgment somewhere. I want to love like the Lord loved. I think it'd be all right if if people complained about the people I associated with. Because that's what they did with Jesus. That I'd be willing to stoop to wherever people are or reach up to wherever people are. Because of the love of the Lord is pushing me across any boundary that may exist. And I'm not going to let society and culture invade the church and invade my thinking. Because let me just say this, in my, in my, because we tend to be extremists, so in my defense of this uh, going against all this acceptance and tolerance, you know what I could become? Just as intolerant as anyone else. Just as intolerant. And I allow hate to grow in my heart. I allow bitterness and judgment to grow in my heart. And then come in and try and lift my hands and wonder why I can't feel what I used to feel. I believe God is calling us. Let me just say, in this... I'll... In this, i got to finish. i got two prayer claws. Pray for me. In this community, in, this, in Marion County, it's one of the least, it's in the bottom five of, of ethnically diverse counties in the entire state. In fact, it could be lower than that, but I know it's at least the bottom five. It's a, it's a 2% of this county is of any ethnic minority. That's very few people of 39,000 plus. 
what would be a better witness to our community than in a community that has no race present? If suddenly there was a place where all races, every economic stratus, social, there was people who'd had marriages for 50 years sitting next to single moms. What better witness could this county, could this community have than the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts? I want us to pray right now. Lord Jesus, we come.